We've been in some stories from parables, and these uh, parables Jesus tells us, they, they really pack a punch. Jesus uh, hits us hard. Some of you uh, let us know uh, uh, that you got hit hard last week, and, and friends, that's a good thing. Really, it's a God thing. And, and depending where you're at uh, this week, uh, this week's parable will, for some of you, also pack a punch. For all of us, there's things we need to consider, whether we're followers of Jesus or we're just checking out Jesus and, and his claims. Today's uh, parable is from the account of Jesus that the Apostle Matthew wrote. You can follow along in your Bibles, uh, you know, that you have in your phones, or if you have a paper one with you, or you can just follow along, it'll be on the screen. It'll be found in Matthew chapter 18, and I'll be starting at verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 uh, times. Then Jesus goes, and some versions go uh, 70 times 7. Then Jesus goes, okay, listen to this story. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began uh, the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold or talents in many versions was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay the master, um, since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The, master, the servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of uh, his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, Be patient with me, and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Now, by virtue of what I do as a pastor, I, I tend uh, to end up at a lot more funerals than most of you, uh, although for sure there's this guy named Robert Parameter, a former pastor at McMurray Gospel Assembly. He, he certainly outdoes me. Robert is now a, a funeral director at Robertson Anderson Funeral Home. Uh, he's actually the owner-manager there now, and I say that since I know a few of you know him. But here's the deal about funerals. Everybody knows how to behave at funerals. You might call it funeral etiquette. I'm pretty sure there's never been a rule book written about how to behave at a funeral, but everybody intuitively understands from the moment you walk into a room where there's a casket and a, a grieving family, you go, I think I know how to behave. I think I understand funeral etiquette. I think I'm going to be respectful and quiet and thoughtful and prayerful and comfortable. It's just the right thing to do at a funeral. Funeral etiquette. Same kind of thing at, at, at weddings. 
At a certain point uh, in the processional, the mother of the bride stands up and turns around to uh, look at her stunningly beautiful daughter, the bride coming down the aisle. And, and you know what everybody else does once the mother of the bride stands and, and looks back? Well, if you value your life, right, you will all stand up and you will do as the mother of the bride does. You'll look back and you'll smile and you'll gush and you'll say how beautiful she is because that's wedding etiquette. Nobody has to teach you that. You just do it because, yeah, it's the right thing to do. In the parable that I just read, we see what I think could be described as a flagrant violation of what we might call grace etiquette. What we see in this parable is just how sensitive God is about how people who experience grace behave once that unmerited favor comes their way. According to this uh, parable, any violation of grace etiquette is a, a significant violation in God's book. It's, it's really a big deal. Now there's some context to why Jesus is giving us this parable. The apostle uh, Peter is trying to show off a little bit. You know, he's like that. He's, he's trying to impress Jesus with how much Jesus' teaching about forgiveness is changing the way that he behaves. In effect, Peter is saying, hey, Jesus, you, you know that my whole upbringing taught me the eye for, the, the eye for an eye thing. But yeah, I, I hear you teaching us. I hear you saying, if, if someone punches me in the face... I'm not allowed to get three buddies and gang up on that guy and put him in the, in the hospital. That would, be, that would be totally wrong. But Jesus, you know, I haven't been raised the way that you teach. The way that I've been raised, and it's really perfectly within the law here in Israel, is I could personally throw my best single punch back at that guy who punched me first. An eye for an eye, a, a punch for a punch. Now, Jesus... With all that you've been teaching us, you know, things like the supremacy of love and the importance of nonviolence, the idea of turning the other cheek, the, the idea of forgiving people, I'm sensing a whole new standard in how I need to behave if someone wrongs me. So Jesus, I've decided to up my game. If someone wrongs me, my, my, my new reflex is going to be simply to forgive him. If someone wrongs me again, Jesus... I'm actually going to forgive him a second time. And just to blow your mind, Jesus, because you're always blowing mine and everybody else's, I think I'm going to forgive whoever wrongs me up to, and he's just kind of making this up, up to uh, uh, what uh, seven times. What do you think of that, Jesus? And Peter is expecting Jesus to applaud him, to high-five him, or, or at least compliment him for this dramatic uh, spiritual growth in front of all of the other people that are there. Instead, Jesus says, Peter, you are so close to getting the number right. There is a seven in that number, but the actual number is 70 times seven, which just makes Peter's head explode, right? He was showing off just getting to seven. And this is a very disturbing number for all of the people there who are listening to Jesus. And what Jesus is really saying is that there's no real number on, on the high side of how often Jesus expects his followers to extend forgiveness to those who wrong him. Hey, is 70 times 7 a disturbing number for any of you here today or watching online? 
Can you imagine having the capacity to forgive endlessly, repetitively, joyfully over the course of your whole life, no matter who wronged you or how often? Well, it's in the middle of uh, this uncomfortable statement about how often we should be willing to forgive someone else that Jesus tells this unforgettable story that I read to you. Let me just hit the high points of it again. The king lends money to some trusted citizens, fully expecting all of the original investment principle to be returned to him with a handsome profit on top. So now it's the day where the settling of the accounts is going to occur. And, and one guy apparently got hooked into some sort of crypto Ponzi scheme with, you know, 23-year-old Canadian crypto king, uh, king Aiden uh, uh, Petersky. I mean, did any of you see the video of Aiden? He got kidnapped a week or so ago, beat up, and then he apologized, all beaten up on that video for defrauding people of millions of dollars through crypto. It's, it's quite the video that's been circulating, and it's been on the news. Well, he's been arrested, and his kidnappers have been arrested, and a lot of people <clears throat> are still out of a lot of money. So I'm thinking that this guy in Jesus' parable might have got caught in something like this. The result is he didn't just lose the original principle, but he ended up growing a debt of an unimaginable amount. And now the king calls this foolish investor in for a meeting. The king's bookkeeper says, hey, you know, he actually owes you like 10,000 talents. In Jesus' day, that was the highest number anyone could imagine. It's a, it's a staggering amount. In our day, think a billion dollars or more, not a million, but a billion or more. The king knows this guy can't repay a debt of this uh, like in a hundred lifetimes. So to punish him and uh, like send a message to other investors, he orders the guy, his wife, and all of his kids to be sold into slavery for the rest of their lives. Upon hearing the sentence, the, the foolish investor just throws a Hail Mary. I mean, he's got nothing to lose. And he very dramatically falls to his knees before the king and, and just begs him shamelessly to cut him a break, to, to give him some more time to work things out, which is, which is ridiculous considering the size of this debt. But, hey, the guy's thinking about his wife and his kids being sold into slavery, so, so he's scrambling. He's on his knees pleading and begging and crying because he's all out of options. And to everyone's shock, the king gets emotional. His heart softens. He actually feels empathy for this guy, or, or maybe he feels empathy for this guy's spouse and kids, but with a stroke of his pen, he, he cancels this man's staggering debt. And if you know anything about how investments work, that means that the king himself has to absorb this massive liability and somehow pay the billion-dollar debt with his own resources. Yet he follows his heart, and he absorbs the debt cancels it out on behalf of the debtor, and he sets the guy free. Quick time out. You are all very intelligent people. You know that the metaphor that Jesus is working with here, you get it. You, you know that he's using an accounting metaphor to plant seeds in people's minds about another issue. And the issue would be asked this way. How massive is your moral debt uh, before an absolutely holy God? How massive is mine? Actually, I'd rather not talk about mine. Let's talk about yours. Okay. 
Do some of you have just a, a tiny little bit of moral debt before a holy God? Do some of you have maybe a moderate amount? Do some of you have massive amounts of moral debt before a holy God? Let me pull out an illustration I've used before to help you see your moral debt. It's not my original idea. It's just an illustration that lots of pastors use. Now, it's an old illustration with a couple of the main characters who are not alive today. And man, I tried and tried to find living examples of people who the world knows lives morally upright, holy lives. It is darn tough to find people like that today. Um, not as morally upright, say, as Mother Teresa and Billy Graham, who have both passed away, but in my lifetime, people identify them as among the most, uh, um, yeah, as the, among the, the most holy people who have ever lived. Now, I just got to find out how dated my illustration. How, how many of you have never heard of Mother Teresa? Oh, we got a few. Okay. How many, now, how many have never heard of Billy Graham? Yeah, there's a couple of you. Okay, so... So this is why I have to work on this illustration a little bit, but let me just assure you that uh, they were holy people. Okay. Um, and, and sometimes this is something that I do on a little serviette or a sheet of paper uh, when I'm talking to someone out there, you know, about where they stand with God, but uh, I've got a whiteboard this time and it'll do great. So I'm going to need a volunteer, and by the way, his name happens to be Denzel Mori, and um, He's going to be willing to be honest to all of us about his moral standing before God. Um, tell us where he's at in his relationship with God. And, and I picked you, Denzel, because you might be a pretty holy guy, maybe. Uh, I mean, you're on the board here at Fort City, so that says something. And you're an RCMP officer, so you've got to be at least a little bit clean, maybe. And he was once a pastor. So, Denzel, would you please come on up here and, and, and help me out? All right. So uh, as he comes up, I, I'm going to draw a line, and I'm going to put, yeah, I'm going to put God right up at the top here, all right? So there's God. Now, Denzel, there's a, what I'm going to ask you to do in a minute, but just in a minute, I'm going to ask you to put an X where you think you are in relationship with God, you know, just how holy you are. Are you, yeah, and you might just put an X... You could put an X right here because you really are super holy. You're almost as good as God. You could put an X right there. Now, um, I mentioned Mother Teresa as one of the more holy of people uh, around. Well, in, in her book, Mother Teresa actually confesses a little bit that uh, when she was a, a, a sister in this particular order, uh, that she was a bit of a rebel and that she would argue with her superiors and uh, get into fights with some of the other nuns. And uh, yeah, she said she, she described that she had some dark times in her life. So, so even though she's pretty holy, she would put herself pretty far down there and her ex would be uh, around there. A lot of people think Billy Graham should be up there as well. And, and he, you know, I mean, he got through his life without scandal. Um, he led hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to Jesus through his crusades. And, and yeah, um, I, I went to conferences where I heard uh, Billy Graham speak, and uh, um, he was pretty brutally honest about, uh, about his life and his sinfulness. And, and as I listen to him, I think, well, I'll, I'll put Billy Graham just a little bit uh, south of Mother Teresa. So let's just do this, Mother, Mother T and BG. How's that? All right, we got Mother Teresa and, and, and 
Billy Graham. Um, and, uh, but when I consider those two, I mean, I'd be way down there, like really way down there. Just, I won't tell you how far down, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm down there a bit. And then uh, a couple of weeks ago, I was in a conversation with a guy who really didn't know who Billy Graham was or didn't know Mother Teresa. And so as we got into this conversation, he told me that the most holy individual that he has ever met is Adrian Welsh, you know, from our staff team. And he actually said that. This is true. This is true. He said that he sensed the presence of Jesus uh, in her, that he could see Jesus in her. Myself and Lucas, he wasn't so sure about, but, 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 but Adrian, absolutely. absolutely. So uh, he thought that Adrian would be way up here. But, but I know Adrian, I work with her. Um, so I know she should be a little further down, maybe down here. But, um, but for the sake of honoring my friend there, we'll put Adrian between uh, Mother Teresa and Billy Graham. Yeah, and if any of you are new, um, Adrian's on our, our pastoral team. So, Denzel, this is where you come in. This is where we need you. Let me give you the pen, and would you let us know where would you see yourself on in this chart? Try not to go up here. This is Adrian. That's Adrian, yes. <laughs> I'm going to be down here. Oh, there you go. Thank you. That's all we need from you. And to be honest, I think most of us would head as far down south there as possible, right? And uh, yeah, the point is, there is a gap between the line God sits on and where each of us is on that scale, and the gap is serious. But that gap doesn't have to be terminal. Here's the deal. The Bible says, and friends, I'm not making this up. It isn't my theory. But the Bible says that God saw your gap and knew you needed help and could never in a hundred lifetimes get to where Billy Graham or Mother Teresa got. So he sent Jesus Christ, his son, and Jesus takes your wrongdoing on himself. He absorbs your moral debt puts it on his own shoulder, and he dies that atoning death on the cross. In addition to that, Christ, uh, the theological word, you've got to learn something theological now and then, the theological word is imputes. Um, Christ imputes his righteousness to you. He, he, he comes into you and he makes you holy so that you end up reconciled with God. You actually look perfect in his sight on the basis of what Jesus did for you. It's, it's called amazing grace. So what do you think when you see a beautiful piece of art? Uh, where would you place yourself uh, on that scale? Um, Here's what just happened to me as I, I used this uh, little story a, a couple of weeks ago to a guy who was sorting out faith issues. Upon hearing about the gap between himself and God, this guy could really understand that was the gap. He says, oh yeah, I've got a gap. I've got stuff. More stuff than I'll ever tell you. And uh, uh, when I told him about the gift of Jesus and the goodness and grace Jesus wants to give us, he just thought it was too good to be true, that it was impossible, that it can't be that easy, and he just pushed God's gift away. I have several Islamic friends who, uh, who uh, do that, but you know, just can't imagine that you know, they can just be given, that they've got to do more than just ask for forgiveness. And it's not just Islamic friends. 
But for those of us who grasp it and who by faith believe it and receive it and, and trust it and, and embrace it, this is the single most explosive and transformative thing our hearts have ever experienced. And when we realize that this is not just a one-time miracle, but we get to experience God's grace daily, that, that his mercies and grace are new to us every morning, and we get to live in this grace-filled relationship with the risen Savior, friends, when we really understand it, we explode with gratitude. When we really get it, friends, it wrecks us. It changes us. It, it redefines everything. Now hang on to that because I'm going to come back to it in just a few moments. Uh, I just want to finish up this parable, so back to the story. The foolish investor who had, this, had his billion-dollar debt canceled, his wife and his kids are set free from slavery. He walks out of the place, and what does he do? He grabs hold of a guy who owes him pocket change, a, a couple of hundred bucks from a bad hockey bet. And when he finds this guy, look at how the story goes. He grabbed him and began to choke him. And he says, you pay back what you owe me. And he's roughing the guy up physically. But we know that before this. I mean, the king never laid a finger on this guy, this, this billion-dollar debtor. But this guy grabs and chokes his fellow servant. I mean, come on, what's up with that? Then watch what happens next. This man falls to his knees and begs him, please be patient, please be patient. I will pay you back everything. Friends, does this sound familiar? I mean, a, a mere few hours ago, this, this billion-dollar debtor was on his knees, pleading the same way and using the very same words. Surely this billion-dollar debtor is going to connect the dots and have his heart softened. I mean, surely, right? Wrong. He has this guy who's begging on his knees, thrown into prison, and uh, doing so didn't faze him. He just goes his merry way. Now, guess who rats him out? The fellow investors who had been in the palace when the good-hearted king canceled this guy's billion-dollar debt. Those uh, fellow investors became greatly distressed at the behavior of this debtor. Why? Friends, he didn't disobey the law from back then. It was legal to throw someone in prison if they owed you money and couldn't pay. Why were these other investors so distressed? They were distressed because grace etiquette had been flagrantly violated, and it disturbed them to the core of their being. Something is way wrong when grace etiquette is violated. These guys all knew and understood grace etiquette, People who experience grace extend grace. Can I say it again? Grace etiquette in a nutshell. People who uh, experience grace extend grace. It's intuitive. You don't have to read a book about it. You, you don't have to do a college class on it. Every human being knows that when you experience grace, you extend it. And to do... Uh, Anything other than that is just not uh, unthinkable. It's subhuman. That's how, you know, off base it is. It's, it's subhuman. So what does the good-hearted king do when these other guys rat out the first investor? He gets a hold of the billion-dollar debtor that he had just forgiven and says, you wicked man, like, what's up with this? And I canceled all of that debt because you begged me to. Uh, shouldn't you have mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? 
Don't you know anything about grace etiquette? Well, apparently not. So off to the same prison you just sent your hockey buddy to. Won't he be surprised? And you're going to be there a lot longer than he'll be. And just to make sure that there's no mystery or fuzziness in the understanding of this parable, Jesus then steps out of the parable and he says, listen, everyone, listen. This is how my heavenly Father will treat every one of you severely unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Friends, man, I don't mean to be hard with you with with God's word, just straight, but I tell you, Jesus is laying it down real hard here. This is how my heavenly Father is going to treat you unless you forgive your brothers and sisters from your heart. So to wrap this all up, let me just throw out there uh, what to me is a mystery that I see in churches all over the place, all over time. And that is how someone can say that they follow Jesus, that Jesus has paid for their sin gap, but they have no passion for their faith. They have no passion when they sing songs of worship. Uh, Nobody where they work would ever know that they love Jesus. They drop in on church when it's convenient. They avoid serving and volunteering. And and instead of sacrificial giving, they just tip Jesus. And Okay, it's usually because they don't truly understand the magnitude of the debt that Jesus has absorbed for them on the cross. Friends, we are all way down here on the moral perfection scale. There's a huge insurmountable scale uh, between, you know, gap between us and Jesus. We're all messed up. We all, yeah, none of us deserve the grace of God. None of us deserve to spend eternity with Jesus. But that's what God offers us. Pardon from sin and a peace that endures. Life transformation that starts now. He changes our lives now. And it goes on where we live forever with him in eternity. Your billion dollar sin debt. No, your, your trillion dollar sin debt. No, it, it's bigger than that. It's been absorbed by Jesus. And for paying that debt, he asks us to simply live for him. And paying that debt, he says the first thing you do is you go public with your faith through baptism like you saw in those videos. But some of us, we just blow off what Jesus asks us to do. Some of you never cry or at least get emotionally moved when we sing a song or a hymn like Amazing Grace. Friends, Jesus wants us to understand that you cannot call yourself a Christian and not have at least some understanding of how great a debt of yours was paid and and then not respond by living passionately, living fully devoted on mission for Jesus every day. And if there is no passion or deep emotion for Jesus and what he did for you, what Jesus is saying in this parable is that you are a candidate for a bad surprise on that last day of this world. I'm not making this stuff up. I don't like even saying it. These are hard words of Jesus that are hard to preach. But friends, we we have to wrestle with the hard words of Jesus and not, not just the easy ones. We love the easy ones. But Jesus says, for grace to be real in our lives, you must see it in our lives. And if someone can't see Jesus in you, and if there's no real passion for Jesus, and if we just pick and choose what parts of the New Testament we like and avoid the others, there are words of warning in the middle of all these grace-filled words found throughout the New Testament. Like these words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. He was talking about the day of reckoning when people are going to stand before God. He said a lot of people are going to come into the presence of God and say, hey, I'm good with you, right, God? I'm good with you. You're good with me, right? And Jesus said, the Father's going to say, depart from me. I, I just, I really never knew you. 
Jesus said there's going to be a lot of people who are going to get a terrible surprise. They hung around churches, they carried Bibles, they could sing songs and say the prayers. It's, it's just they never had a true moment of understanding about their separation from God, and they never had a true moment of wonder where amazing grace wrecked their hearts. And there was never really a relationship day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment, where they walked with God through life and sensed his presence and felt his love and were strengthened by his power and, and guided by his spirit. Jesus said a lot of this would be a bad surprise for a lot of people who hung around churches but never really got their arms and heart around this and experienced amazing grace for themselves. And friends, every now and then, we just need to be reminded about the hard words of Jesus. And this is God being good to us, really, by asking us, getting us to evaluate, have we ever really had a true conversion experience where we repented of our sin, repented of that sin gap, and accepted God's free gift of forgiveness? This parable from today has infected me in, in, in many ways, and... Um, Sometimes, uh, this is mostly with family members, but sometimes friends as well will borrow money from me. And, you know, they just need a short-term loan, maybe a thousand bucks. Okay, my kids, sometimes it's a little more than that. But I go, sure, God's blessed me. Sure, no interest. Just when you can get the money back to me, uh, please pay it back. And sometimes I'll realize, you know, six, eight, twelve months later that I don't even really miss the money. Now, the borrow might still be in a world of hurt, and I go, I, I've had a billion-dollar moral debt canceled, and sometimes, not always, but sometimes God will nudge me and tell me to just forgive that financial debt. Some of you have members and friends who owe you a little bit of money. Uh, if your heart is working right, maybe the Spirit of God, maybe, would move you to cancel the debt in the name of the one who canceled yours. And I want to be real specific here. Some of you have been holding grudges and, and bitterness, you claim that you've been forgiven, but then you just won't extend forgiveness to others. It's a, really, it's a horrible disconnect. It's a violation of grace etiquette. Friends, if you've experienced grace, extend it. Get it done with. Get beyond it. You'll be glad you did. If you've experienced grace, live passionately for Jesus with a grateful heart. Again, what is Jesus saying? If you've experienced grace, extend it. Will you do that? Bow with me for a time of prayer and maybe take the words that I'm praying and, and pray them with me in your heart. Dear Jesus, my prayer this morning, wreck me with your grace. Just pray that. Wreck me with your grace. Fill me with your spirit that overflows with passion and gratitude for you. And today, I promise to live a life devoted to you on mission with you in thanks for absorbing my debt. Maybe some of you need to take the next step and repent of your sin and ask Jesus to just throw his grace into you and transform you so that you can live for him now and forever. Would you pray this prayer with me? Make this your own personal prayer. Ah, Jesus, I just admit it. I, I do like this Christianity thing, but I've never really sorrowed for my sin. I've never really been wrecked by the sin gap between me and you. Just, just admit that to him. I've just never taken my sin that seriously. Today that changes. I see that sin gap and the horrendous debt that I owe you for my sin. And I see that you, Lord Jesus, absorb that debt because you love me. So today I, I turn from my sin. I confess that I'm a sinner. 
I repent and I give my life to you, asking you to infuse my life with your righteousness as I live for your glory now and forever. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.